Good evening, friends. Our theme this evening and tomorrow evening is praying with Christ through the Psalms. Tonight, we'll reflect on this a little bit with St. Augustine, tomorrow with Servant of God, Dorothy Day. The mystery that we have to consider, that I'm offering for us to consider, is the mystery that Christ himself prays the Psalms such that when we pray them, we are aware of something more than that they are about Christ or that we are praying to Christ, but that they are his prayer. If you're like me, you perhaps take it for granted that Christ prays. We see it in the Gospels. He intercedes for us now, eternally at the right hand of the Father. But the more we attend, I think, to the fact that he prays, the more unsettling, the more mysterious his person becomes. Consider, on the one hand, Christ calming the sea and at the very end of Mark chapter 4. I'm not going to read it right now for the sake of our time. Christ is asleep in the stern of the boat. The waves are getting high. The wind is really picked up. The disciples are panicking, and they plead out to him, do something, save us. Do you not care if we perish? And Christ speaks, be calm. The wind dies. The waves settle down. He has power and authority over the waves and the wind. On the other hand, Consider the moment in Gethsemane. And this I will read briefly. They went to a place which is called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this chalice from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You know the story. You know he's going to go back to the disciples, find them sleeping, go back to prayer, go back to the disciples, go back and pray a third time to the Father. Remove this cup from me, if you will, but not what I will, but you, what you will. If we keep everything in mind from the gospel, from his calming of the sea up to this moment in Gethsemane, it seems to me that we're kind of provoked into asking, wait, weren't you the one who healed people? Weren't you the one who raised the dead? Weren't you the one who calmed the wind and the waves? What's your problem now? You have power to remove this cup. And why don't you? You have the power to prevent your betrayal and your death and your burial. So why not now? It's in that sense, it seems to me, that the poignancy, the mystery of his person increases across the gospel. If we, if we pay attention to the fact that he prays, that he has the power to remove this cup. After all, who calms the sea and the winds? 
Here's a little passage from Psalm 107, which recounts the merciful deeds that the Lord has done for his people throughout their history. In the middle of Psalm 107, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted to heaven, the waves did. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away and in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his merciful love. That sounds a lot like the episode in Mark, right? And the calming of the waters, except that instead of the God, instead of God who is invoked, it's Christ who is invoked and who acts, right? And it seems to me that, that the gospel is provoking us to ask, who is this with the disciples? Who is it that even the winds and the waters obey him? He has the power to remove the cup from him, to not undergo his betrayal, his suffering, his death, and his burial. But in some way, although divine, yet at the same time, he doesn't exercise his power on his own behalf, but for the sake of others. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, I think, all kinds of miracles are performed. Elisha even raises a person from the dead, but only God has power over the seas and the winds and the water. So we get to the moment in Gethsemane, and I think the, new, the gospel provokes us into asking, who is this that even though he is divine in some way, yet although divine, and as the person who receives prayer at the same time, is reduced to praying. The very fact that he is praying, the one who is prayed to by the disciples in the boat, that's an unsettling mystery to me. If friends, if I were God and I came to visit people on earth, my creation, even supposing that I would suffer to let myself be born as a baby and be incarnate, even supposing I did anything like that, the, last, the very last thing that I would do is pray. It must be, if you're God, it must be utterly humiliating to be reduced to pray, right? I'm God. I hear your prayers. I answer your prayers, or I don't. <laughs> what does it mean for me to have to pray? I would do, I would do just about everything, friends. I, I, let's admit that God had a bad career counselor and he became well, he was born as a baby he grew he suffered he was betrayed I would do I would do all that I would allow myself to be crucified knowing that I'm going to be raised from the dead but the last thing that I would do would pray unless maybe to myself just think how that would go for a moment oh Brian let this cup pass good idea let's take a rain check on this one <laughs> 
Sorry. Okay, it's fine. Sends the humor. Friends, the point is, if you're God, it must be utterly humiliating to have to pray. What kind of God is it that can both receive prayer and at the same time pray in such a way that he truly prays and isn't just going through the motions the way I would, isn't just play acting, but really prays? That's a question that exercised the early church. If Jesus in some way is God, when he prays, if he's really praying, he must not be praying to something else as we do when we pray. His prayer, if it is to be truly prayer, must be praying to someone else, but not something else. So we see some indication of how the doctrine of the Trinity is hidden in the New Testament. What kind of God is it that in revealing himself can be so self-emptying that he is reduced to invoking God? Because to be completely self-emptying, to abandon, so to speak, all the blessedness and unspeakably intimate communion of the life of the Trinity, and to truly live a human life as we know it, and to identify with the human condition as we know it, you'd have to be reduced to praying and not getting what you will, and not getting what you want or seem to want. And that's an unsettling mystery. It's a mystery that St. Augustine can help us to eliminate because what he finds in the Psalms is that Christ's prayer is an act of identification with us in humility. This is what Augustine discovers in the Psalms. I hope you'll indulge me because there are a handful of passages, just a handful, that I want to read from some of his texts, but they're just too beautiful not to share with you. Okay? Probably for our purposes here in Lent, as a Lenten reflection, as we're moving toward Holy Week, perhaps the best case, the best example to draw from is his reflections on Psalm 22 and the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What must it mean, Augustine asks, that Christ, in uttering these words from the cross, is also quoting a psalm, is praying the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For St. Augustine, something more is at stake than simply Psalm 22 prophesying Christ or Christ quoting the psalm in order to fulfill it. Precisely as a prayer, as his prayer, there is in Christ's taking up of these words some revelation of love. So here's how he goes about it. And one homily on Psalm 22. He quotes the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did the Lord mean, he asks. God had not abandoned him since he himself was God. Listen to the evangelist John. He, was, he who was in the beginning with God was God, he goes on. And yet, when this word had become flesh and hung, across, and hung upon the cross, he cried, my God, look upon me. Why have you forsaken me? 
For what other reason, Augustine asks, was this said than that we were there? For what other reason than that Christ's body is the church? Why did he say, my God, my God, look upon me? Why have you forsaken me? Unless he was somehow trying to catch our attention to make us understand this psalm is written about me. Augustine makes so bold to say that, do you suppose, brothers and sisters, that when the Lord had said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, he was afraid to die? A soldier is not braver than the commander in chief. It is enough for the servant to be like his master. But Paul, a soldier enlisted in the army of Christ the King says, I am pressed on both sides. I long to die and to be with Christ. If Paul craves death in order to be with Christ, can Christ himself fear death? Why did he make that prayer then, except because he was bearing our weakness and made it for those members of his body who still fear death? That was where the words came from. This was the voice of his members, not of his head. He says elsewhere, commenting on the same words, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? He says, the words of this psalm are spoken in the person of the crucified one. For here at its beginning is the cry he uttered while he hung upon the cross. He speaks consistently in the character of our old self, our old man, the old man who is dying away, whose mortality he bore, which was nailed to the cross with him. In the first place, let me say, Augustine's not inventing anything here. He's thinking of Paul's words in Romans 6. If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a res resurrection like his. We know that our former man, the old man, was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. The mystery of Christ's identification with us is that he who did not know sin became sin so that we, as Paul says, might become the righteousness of God. But if this is true, if we who have been baptized into Christ's death and have become members of his body, then for Augustine, we are in some mysterious way present as the members of that body offered on the cross. So Augustine's not inventing anything here. He's trying to be a good reader of Paul. Nor for Augustine are Christ's words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, a mere impersonation they reveal a depth dimension to his very person and his every act, a saving union that Augustine calls the whole Christ, the totus Christus in his Latin, the whole Christ. It's one of his most beautiful insights, the mystery that Christ in his person and the church, his body and his bride 
simply form one whole Christ. It's not an image for, for Augustine of a kind of static relationship of Christ ascended up into heaven, holding a place for us while we strive here until our labors are complete and we can be united with him. For Augustine, the idea of the whole Christ is one of a transfiguration. His power to unite himself to us in everything that is ours so that we can receive everything that is his. And that's just what the church is, the world being transfigured into Christ, at least for Augustine. I could go on, but let me give you a couple of really beautiful quotes from St. Augustine on that very question. Here he's commenting on Psalm 31. And he quotes the lines which seem to suggest that Christ praying is afraid. Let me never be put to shame. He says, whose fear is this? Christ, certainly, since it is about Christ and he speaks, or our fear, perhaps. Surely we cannot attribute fear to Christ as his passion loomed when we know that that was what he came for. When he had reached that suffering for which he had come, was he afraid of imminent death? Surely even if he had been human only and not God, he would have been joyful at the prospect of the future resurrection. I don't know if I can go as far as Augustine does there, but that's where he goes. He goes on, but in fact, he who deigned to assume the form of a slave and within that form to clothe us with himself, he who did not disdain to take us up into himself, he didn't disdain either to transfigure us into himself and to speak in our words so that we in our turn might speak in his. This is the wonderful exchange the divine business deal, the transaction effected in this world by our heavenly dealer. He came to receive insults and give honors. He came to drain the cup of suffering and give salvation. He came to undergo death and give life. Facing death then, because of what he had from us, he was afraid, not in himself, but in us. When he said that his soul was sorrowful to the point of death, we all unquestionably said it with him. Without him, we are nothing, but in him, we too are Christ. Why? Because the whole Christ consists of head and body. The head is he who is savior of his body. He who has already ascended into heaven. But the body is the church toiling on earth. He goes on to quote Saul, uh, Christ appearing to Saul and saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my saints? Why, why are you persecuting my servants? He says, why are you persecuting me? As if he were saying, why are you attacking my limbs? The head was crying out on behalf of the members. 
and the head was transfiguring the members of the body into himself. Later on, he returns back to the words, I have put my trust in you, O Lord. Let me never be put to shame. And he, he says, Christ is speaking here in the prophet. No, I would dare to go farther and say simply, Christ is speaking. He's going to say certain things in this psalm that we might think inappropriate to Christ, to the excellent dignity of our head, and especially to the word who was God with God in the beginning. Some of the things said here may not even seem suitable to, for him in the form of a servant, the form which he took from the virgin. And yet, it is Christ who is speaking, because in the members of Christ, there is Christ. I want you to understand, head and body together are called one Christ. To make this quite clear, he says, they will be two in one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. So out of two people, one single person comes to be, the single person that is head and body, bridegroom and bride. The wonderful, surpassing unity of this person is celebrated by the prophet Isaiah. He gives a little quote from Isaiah. He calls, when he calls himself both bridegroom and bride. He says, St. Augustine says, if they are two in one flesh, why not two in one voice? Let Christ speak then, because in Christ, the church speaks, and in the church, Christ speaks, and the body speaks in the head, and the head in the body. A couple of long passages that are dense and I know difficult to reflect on, and I can share them with you later if you want after this. The proposal that I have for you now is simply that in our praying the Psalms, in our making a habit of our praying the Psalms, we come to appropriate to ourselves Christ's own prayer, and we discover our prayer in him. So what can we conclude from this? First, the Psalms aren't merely about Christ. As Augustine just said, insofar as we can say with our head that we are Christ, then we are the living subject of the Psalms. In Psalm after Psalm, Augustine says, we discover our own voice. Quote, who is singing? The body of Christ. And who is that? You are, if you will it. And since our voice, for Augustine anyway, is in the Psalms, we cannot pray them, he says, except without except with, with deep affection. If the psalm prays, he says, you pray. If it laments, you lament. If it exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything here is written as a mirror for us. Thus the psalms, I think, for St. Augustine are a school of the training of our affections, of our desires, so that we learn how to voice our, our desires, our affections with Christ. 
and that we might be totally conformed to his love. In this vein, the Second Vatican Council in the document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, introduces the divine office, which we just prayed, the, the liturgy of the hours. It introduces this in this way. Christ Jesus, high priest of the new and eternal covenant, taking human nature, introduced into this earthly exile that hymn which is sung throughout all ages in the halls of heaven. He joins the entire com community of mankind to himself, associating it with his own singing of this canticle of divine praise. For he continues his priestly work through the agency of his church, which is ceaselessly engaged in praising the Lord and interceding for the salvation of the world. So let me put a fine point on this first conclusion. When we pray the Psalms, the song is Christ's. It's his song of prayer. If the church, his body and his bride can be said to sing this song to him, it is insofar as she unites, she unites her song with his. Their one voice utters, as Sacrosanctum Concilium says, the very prayer which Christ himself addresses to the Father. A second conclusion I'd like to offer to you out of this, out of Augustine's reflections. His identification with us in prayer is only possible because he emptied himself. In the words of an ancient council, one of the Trinity was crucified. He not only assumed the condition of, our, of say, an unfallen Adam, which is what I would do if I were God become incarnate. There's no way I would be vulnerable to all the things that you're vulnerable to. He not only assumed the condition of an unfallen Adam, but he, went, he bent himself all the way down to us. He made himself subject to all the frailty, all the disappointments, the dashed hopes, the mockery and contempt, the profound injustice, betrayal, desolation, and abandonment, which is all properly ours, until he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he really came to share our life as we know it, as slaves to sin, even though he had not sinned. He came without any air of being too good for us. He threw his lot in with ours. He didn't care enough to hang on to the status of being sinless, though never sinning. One of the Trinity willed to be counted among sinners, and he never backed away. He never pulled rank. He refused to break the solidarity into which he emptied himself. He refused to come down from the cross. Friends, I would have. People would have mocked me and said, come down from there if you're so God. I wouldn't have waited a second. I would have come right down. Okay, maybe I would have seen it all the way through. But then I would have said, I'm taking names and I'm coming back. But he didn't do that. He refused to break fellowship even in death 
the penalty for sin. And having persisted in solidarity with us to the very end, to that point, he transformed all human solidarity as a solidarity in his love, the love that emptied itself. And we now have fellowship with him and with each other in that love, which didn't back down and it never will. That love, that self-emptying love, that's our life. It can never be destroyed because it was raised and it transfigures everything so that no one, no one can ever say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me alone? No one will ever be able to say in their most profound desolation, God, why have you forsaken me alone? Because he will have always met us there. More than that, he said it. He said those words with us and for us so that even our desolation might be transfigured and taken up into his eternal act of thanksgiving, renewed in every Eucharist. And as Christ prays at the end of Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.